if it's clear that Ukrainian society is resisting and will continue to resist and has not been broken, if this is not the occupation of France, but more like the occupation of Warsaw, then I think we owe it to them to give them a chance to defend themselves and to resist, even if that means our weapons are contributing to the killing and the destruction. It's one of those terrible choices where you will not have clean hands no matter what you choose. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Well, the event that intelligence analysts had predicted for many months really did come to pass. Vladimir Putin decided to wage a brutal war on Ukraine. As you're listening to this, this big country of 14 million people, which has been thrust in the center of history so many cruel times in the past, is being assaulted by Russian missiles and soldiers. And it is putting up a surprisingly brave and courageous fight for its survival. It is far too early to know the outcome of this conflict. The most likely scenario remains that Russia's willingness to use brute force will turn Ukraine into a kind of vassal state and be the beginning of a renewed Russian empire. But there are also hopeful signs that Ukraine may somehow manage to resist, that it may put up a sufficiently serious fight to exact a real domestic price for Vladimir Putin. That just perhaps is not a likely scenario, but one that cannot be ruled out. The adventure in Ukraine may turn out to be Putin's last. But there are two things about which I do feel certainty at this point. The first is that the war in Ukraine is the definitive end to the illusions which many of us subscribe to for the last three decades. I was born in 1982. When I was seven, the Berlin Wall fell. The internet promised to connect people from around the world and empower the voiceless. Democracy really was spreading around the world for the first 25 years of my existence on Earth. You didn't have to be naive to be an optimist in those years. But the idea that peace and democracy would only spread around the world now looks to have been a mistake. This started to become clear a long time ago with 9-11 and the Iraq war and the failure of the Arab Spring, the rise of authoritarian populists within Western countries, the strengthening of autocracies in Russia and China. But this brutal war of territorial conquest, which really is an aberration even in the cruel history of the last 75 years, puts a definitive end to those illusions. We can no longer pretend that we are sure to live in the kind of holiday from history that many of our parents enjoyed. The second point is that the fight for democracies to curtail the ambitions of autocratic leaders like Vladimir Putin is now more important than ever. 
And the second consolation in the last days, beyond the courageous fight of the Ukrainian people, has been that democratic nations have finally understood the urgency and the importance of this moment, that sanctions imposed on Putin's regime have been serious and swift, that a country like Germany has performed a rapid about turn with its willingness to send weapons to Ukraine with its announcement to invest more money into its military. But the question is whether this resolve, which we're seeing in the midst of this cruel war, will last after its end. Our task now needs to be to make this a turning point in which we recognize the price of liberty, the difficulty of preserving it for the rest of our lives and for the generations of our children or grandchildren. However, after a moment of moral righteousness, we return to the lazy habits of facilitating the job of dictators, of allowing the oligarchs to take advantage of all Western amenities, of making ourselves dependent on the business and the gas and oil. It will take real resolve beyond a few weeks to be equal to this moment. That is the certainty, whether or not we will master that resolve in a durable fashion is the question. My guest today is George Packer. George is a winner of a National Book Award, a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of many important books, including The Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. And he wrote a very interesting article in The Atlantic yesterday called Ukraine is Redefining America's Interest. We talked about the terrible war in Ukraine, about how that puts to rest some of the illusions we have harbored for the last three decades, and what democratic nations around the world now need to do in order to defend liberal values at home and abroad. It's a probing conversation which we held at a time of deep uncertainty and a time of urgent moral concern for the events in Ukraine. But it really helped me think through what is going on in these important days. I hope it might provide a little bit of solace to you in the same way. George Packer, welcome to the podcast. Nice to be back with you, Yasha. So we're recording this as Russian troops are closing in on Kiev, as Vladimir Putin has launched a full-scale attack on Ukraine. What do you think the lasting significance of this moment is going to be? How will we remember this moment and what it means? It's very hard to know since the moment has just begun. And as much as I expected this, I never thought that Putin was bluffing, but I'm also shocked by it because there's something profoundly disturbing and astounding about the sight of tank columns, airborne assaults, ballistic missiles in Europe. I think it could go one of at least two ways. Either this will be the moment when Western democracies realize that there's a, I guess you would have to call it a new Cold War, which is very hot right now in Ukraine, but which has been building for years in the form of great power autocracies that have become more and more bold and energetic in using threats and force to 
get what they want. And the Western democracies realize that they have to put up a struggle, not just the Western democracies, but democracies, I should say, put up more of a struggle to see this as a concerted threat to what we care about and that it's not going to stop in Ukraine and it may not stop in Hong Kong. So one way to mark this moment, looking backward, is the moment when essentially the democracies got serious and realized that this was a fight that they couldn't keep avoiding. And I don't mean guns blazing fight. I just mean seeing this as the greatest threat to our interests, which really are very close to what I think of as our values or what our values should be. And the other is that this is a moment that Putin wins and that Putin doesn't really suffer enough from to regret. And that Xi Jinping sees as an outrageous move that Putin got away with and that they're both emboldened and so are others. And the upper hand, the momentum of the autocratic states and kleptocratic states who have been in sort of informal alliances is emboldened and begins to act with more and more impunity, more and more audacity. And the rest of the world continues to look on with horror, but in a sort of state of passivity or paralysis. And I think the next few weeks are going to tell us a lot more about which of those two outcomes we'll look back on when we think about the invasion of Ukraine. Now, that's a really helpful way of thinking about it, I think. For me, there's sort of a question about what the meaning of the invasion itself is for how we will understand the last 20 or 30 years. And there, I think, it seems relatively clear to me what it means. And then there's a question about you know, how will it be remembered for the events that it'll inevitably put in motion? And there, I think there's real uncertainty because we don't know what those events will look like. So perhaps let's talk about these two things in turn. For me, it feels at this point as though, you know, I grew up with this optimistic sense of what the future would look like, that it would be more democratic, that it would be more tolerant, that the internet would connect people more, that deep forms of bellicose nationalism are really an anachronism. And this set of certainties has been turning into illusions for a good number of years now, starting in a way of 9-11 and the failure of the Iraq war, going through the horrible failure of the Arab Spring and the fate of Syria and, you know, the Great Recession and a whole bunch of other things. Obviously, the way in which democracy has come under threat within its heartlands, within the United States and other places. But it feels as though Putin's invasion of Ukraine is the final nail in the coffin of that old worldview. It's the moment in which the metamorphosis of the certainties into illusions has sort of visibly been completed. Does that ring true to you? Or how would you think about sort of this moment, not in relation to the future, but in relation to the world of the last 30 years? Yeah, I think that's right. Because really, we've been on a downward trajectory in the prestige and the influence of democracy for a good 15, maybe even 20 years. So it's not as though this is a sudden punch in the face that no one saw coming. It's been coming. It was coming in Ukraine for, you could almost say, since 2004 and the thwarting of the Orange Revolution, and certainly since 2014 with the success of the Maidan Revolution, but which led to the first Russian assault on Ukraine. So in some ways, it's different in degree, but not in kind from what Russia has been doing 
to Georgia, to Ukraine, to Belarus, to Syria for years now. And what China has been doing in Tibet, in Hong Kong, in Xinjiang province, threatening to do in Taiwan, and what other tyrants around the world have been getting away with. So it does feel like more like a last nail than a first, certainly. But I think maybe what it's ended, Yasha, is a sense of any illusion about democratic inevitability, which was an illusion that, you know, Francis Fukuyama wasn't the only one who suffered from that in the early 90s. The experience that I had going to grad school starting my PhD in 2007 through 2015 or so, since I was a slow PhD student, as so many are, was that a lot of people would scoff at Francis Fukuyama and the end of history. But the articles that we were assigned in the comparative politics field survey in the political science department at Harvard basically said the same thing. They too said, and I've mentioned this before on this podcast, that you know once a country has changed governments for free and fair elections a number of times, once it's above a certain economic threshold, you can basically be sure of the future. So I very much agree yeah. with you that the most elegant and interesting formulation of this was often marked, but a sort of less reflective, less explicit version of it was absolutely dominant in the culture. Yeah. And so I think what this has really finally made impossible is any illusion about the inevitability of the world progressing toward a more democratic, more interconnected, more cosmopolitan, better place. So the question is whether the democracies have enough confidence left after all the blows that they've taken in the last 15 or so years to realize that the threat is very present. It's right across the border. It's in our face. And Putin has almost had to throw, as I said before, a really hard punch simply to convince people who may even now not be fully convinced that this is a turn toward a darker world of force, of bullying, of great powers simply throwing their weight around for what they want and crushing small countries, and that the democracies really are way behind the count and have to act with more energy and more of a sense of urgency, give up more, sacrifice more than we've been willing to do. So that's the question I think that's facing the US, Europe, other democratic countries that was not maybe clear enough until last week. Yeah. And so I guess that does return us to the question of not what does this moment tell us about the last 30 years, but what is likely to emerge over the next 30 years, but also over the next 30 days. The rhetoric is very good coming out of Washington and some of the European capitals and the handful of Putin apologists in this country look pretty stupid right now and have had to go quiet or make excuses. So it's not as though there's a lot of disagreement about how horrible this is, but the actions leave something to be desired and may continue to because we in the West may not be ready to give very much up. For example, lower gas prices, interrupted supplies of energy, the wealth that comes from Russian investments by oligarchs in real estate and in financial institutions. I honestly don't understand why we're not throwing the children of Russian oligarchs out of our universities. I don't know what that would cost us. 
but we're not, at least not yet. I don't know why Europe and the US right now are saying financial sanctions, but not personal sanctions on Putin so that he wouldn't be able to travel to these countries. I don't understand that. And some of it's technical, and I might not know enough to understand why, for example, cutting Russia off from the SWIFT banking system is something that isn't happening. And there seems to be a lot of resistance in Europe. But it all seems to add up to we are with the Ukrainians in every way except all the ways that matter. I've been thinking a lot in the last months, as you know, about a sort of lack of conviction, particularly among the American elite, but in this respect, very strongly among the European elite as well. A lack of a sense of what our values actually are and what it might mean to act on them. Now, I think what the West should do about Ukraine right now is a generally complicated question, and we'll get to it more in the rest of the conversation. But there's a number of obvious things we should have done over the last 10 or so years. And through a series of really short-term self-interested reasons, we haven't done that. The UK has not cut off Russian oligarchs because they wanted them to buy fancy houses in London and were worried about house prices going down if they stopped them from spending that money there. Germany did not want to risk having less cheap access to gas or less reliable access to gas or spending some money on making sure they have reliable alternative access to gas. And I guess, you know, if we are now facing a real resurgence of autocracy in a way that poses a serious threat, we will have to get used to making sacrifices again. Those sacrifices don't necessarily even mean wars, but don't necessarily even mean soldiers in battle. They at least mean, you know, you don't build a gas pipeline, which might slightly lower the price of gas in your country, but also deeply undermines the sovereignty of a close-by nation that is ostensibly your ally. And it's not even clear to me that politicians are willing to do that. Now, they haven't been over the last years. Perhaps this will change. But I guess is the realization, is the shock of just how far Putin is willing to go going to be enough to affect that transformation? Or would we need a much broader transformation and seriousness and mindset, which does not, to me at this point, seem to be forthcoming? Right. And if the core of the problem really is that lack of conviction that you mentioned, which allowed the US and Europe to essentially accommodate themselves to Putin, to see him as a nuisance, a problem, but one that we could live with, like an aching back. It's not going to end your life. It's just a pain to deal with. Then there's no telling how much avoidance and complacency and prevarication we're capable of. You know, I wrote a long piece for The Atlantic recently about the evacuation of Kabul and the failure of the US government to take any of the measures before Kabul fell that would save the Afghans who had allied themselves with the United States. And at heart, that was a failure of conviction. It was a kind of confession that those Afghans and the very fragile, relatively open society that they had built under American protection, a confession that they didn't matter all that much, that we were really willing to walk away without too much thought and to leave behind 
an incredible amount of wreckage in their lives, which is not to say that the war should have gone on forever. It's just to say we should have seen what was valuable in Afghanistan and taken better care of it when we decided to leave. And that failure showed a failure to appreciate, I think, what our interests really were in Afghanistan. You know, after the end of that war, there was a kind of triumphalism of the realists. Suddenly, after 20 years of fruitless war in Iraq and Afghanistan, Americans woke up to the fact that we really couldn't do very much about other people's countries. We had no real business in other people's countries. We certainly shouldn't commit troops in order to change other people's countries. We should have a much more limited view of what our national interests are. We should understand that there are other powers around the world that have their own interests that we have to respect and that we should just proceed with much more restraint. And all of that sounded and in some ways was very reasonable as a response to 20 years of, of failure. But what it failed to see was that we're actually already in a new world way beyond 9-11, in which it's not the U.S. that is wreaking havoc with its imperial illusions, but a world of rising autocracies who are a threat to what we should care about. And that the, among those things are liberal values. So by walking away from Afghanistan without much of a thought, about Afghans who had begun to build a society in the name of those values, I think we, we showed that we were missing the point. And the invasion of Ukraine has, in some ways, put a bit of a damper on the triumphalism of realism, as the foreign policy experts call it. Explain to me why that is the case, right? So the realist case, broadly speaking, would be that saving Ukraine is not particularly in our national interest. This is something that Barack Obama has said in the past, that the real geopolitical rival is China rather than Russia, which continues to be a kind of declining nation and a mid-sized economy. So why worry too much about them? That we need to have security partners and security alliances, but that championing liberal or democratic values around the world is not, in fact, going to make us safer. What do you think that this thumb sketch of the realist case for what our national interest is and why it doesn't include Afghanistan, why it doesn't include Ukraine, what does that get wrong in your view? I think it gets wrong how the world is arranging itself in the 21st century. That all the things that our interests involve things like energy supplies and supply chains for goods manufacturing and open seas and you know the good old fashioned great power concerns those are more and more determined and technology really and how states are going to use it and how it affects societies and the human mind itself all of those are more and more dividing along the lines of democratic or autocratic the autocracies seem to have a much better sense of that than the democracies do and are using their connections to each other in order to avoid sanctions, to enrich elites, to control their people. And I don't know why that dividing line, which is certainly one of political values, isn't something that is in acutely in our interest to understand it and to 
prevent it from rolling over us. So Russia is rolling over Ukraine, and that's going to have repercussions in other Eastern European countries, including in NATO countries. And it will either divide the NATO alliance or it will bring it together. In other words, it's going to have consequences that are way beyond whether there's a free press in Kyiv. But somehow the free press in Kyiv seems to be the front line of that division. And we should care about it. I'm not saying we should commit troops to defending it because we can't, because Russia is a nuclear power and Russia is willing to go much farther than we are in defending it in any case. But there are many things we could have been doing and should be doing now to show that we understand our interests lie on that front line between democracy and autocracy, which right now is Ukraine. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yasha, you're the political scientist. What the hell am I talking about to you? I think it does. I mean, I think one of the things that people underestimate is the ways in which the globally dominant country has real impacts on the capacity for democracy at home. I think we're starting to see that with a way in which freedom of speech is being curtailed or in which people are self-censoring because of the rising influence of autocratic countries. I think Europe has really underestimated for the last 10 or 20 years what it would mean to live in dependence on the arbitrary will of a dictator. You know, when you read Nicola Machiavelli, who knew a lot about what it meant to try and build a self-governing republic that was always under threat of external conquest, you know, a lot of what freedom means is that you're not dependent on the will of an external power in his thinking. And European politicians have basically, for the last 10 or 20 years, grown comfortable with a situation in which Vladimir Putin decided whether pensioners in Germany lived or died in the winter because they may run out of gas they need to heat the homes, in which they relied on the United States to defend them against territorial aggression and never had the ambition to even be able to defend themselves. I've been remembering a conversation I had with a German military attaché a number of years ago over a nice, somewhat boring dinner in which I thought I'd liven up the proceedings by asking him by which year the German army aims to be able to defend itself in conventional weapons against Russia. And he uh, said, Russia? And looked at me with sort of bemusement and said, never. Well, I think that has consequences for your ability to self-govern, knowing that you always have to appease this big neighbor on whom you depend for your energy, on whom you depend for your territorial integrity, does not allow you to, in fact, be a truly democratic country. And that's only going to get worse if Russia and China will be the countries setting the global order for the 21st century. So that's, I suppose, how I would couch my concern. I don't know what the implications of that are. And you could say that Putin understood that Ukraine mattered, not just because it's a democratic threat to his 
grip on power, that it is a model on the border that Russians feel very close to, which shows the Russian people that it doesn't have to be this way. But also because Ukraine became the way in which Russia and its oligarchical allies weakened American democracy, which was already weakening. I don't want to say Putin started it, but he exploited it. And in Trump, he had a great ally. And so it's not a coincidence that Trump's first impeachment originated in Ukraine. Trump is a major force in the deterioration of American democracy. And so he looked to Ukrainian oligarchs to allow him to buy corrupt favors and to further corrupt our politics. It's as if the two countries in this weird way, Ukraine, this kind of minor, remote, far Eastern European land that very few Americans have ever set foot in, and the United States are weirdly intertwined and have been for some time. And now it's a real question of what that will mean, what that means for our reaction to what Putin has done to this incredible crime he's committed against the Ukrainian people. So speaking of that, what do you think it would mean for the West to wake up to the stakes of this fight between democracy and autocracy now? What would it mean in general? What would an American decision-making class that is capable of giving up on some of its short-term self-interest, that is able to make sacrifices for the pursuit of liberal values, what would that look like across the globe? And what would that mean concretely regarding Ukraine? So a few random thoughts. One thing it might look like here is the return of a sort of bipartisan foreign policy. Basically, right now on Ukraine, we have a bipartisan foreign policy. There isn't a whole lot of disagreement. There is a faction of the Republican Party that's following Trump into being Putin mouthpieces. And they're powerful. It's Trump, it's Tucker Carlson, it's Mike Pompeo, it's Josh Hawley, it's the populist fringe that seem to have taken over the party. And right now, the elites of the party are trying to disentangle themselves from what they themselves have allowed to happen. I think most Republicans, both leaders and voters, are as appalled and object as much as the Biden administration and most Democrats. So in a way, it's the first issue that seems to have brought at least as far as we can tell, both the voters and the leaders of the two parties together, except that the Republicans are so locked into a destructive approach that they're continuing to blame the whole thing on Biden and to say preposterous things about how he caused this and it would never have happened under Trump, et cetera, et cetera. That's just rhetoric, but it is kind of corrosive rhetoric because it puts the focus back on our divisions, when in fact, I think beneath it, there's more unity than there's been in a long time. It would look like leaders telling their publics why there's going to have to be a little bit of sacrifice in gas prices and in financial disruption, in who they can sell their Mayfair mansions to, who can attend their universities, who can travel to their capitals, etc. I don't know enough to say how much sacrifice that means. Probably if you're German, it might mean a fair amount. If you're American, less perhaps, but still, 
unlike the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which demanded sacrifice of a very small number of American families. This is more of the kind of sacrifice that previous wars have inflicted on whole populations. But leaders have to explain why it matters. Even Biden, who's been very good about Ukraine, I think he's done things mostly right, has not really told us why this matters. He's expressed outrage, but what are the real stakes? And then there's a really difficult question about what do we do about the Ukrainians themselves, who right now, from what I read, are feeling quite alone and betrayed by the world. Of course, no one's sending troops, but it seems as if no one is sending morale either. They're not getting anything solid that would give them the sense that the world is behind them other than speeches. Let's dive into that question and let's distinguish, I think, between two different dimensions, one on which we're very much agreed and one in which I really don't know what to think. And I think you may have a clearer stance. So one is that, you know, quite clearly we should impose very, very far-reaching sanctions on Russia and particularly on Russian oligarchs and particularly on Vladimir Putin in response to this. We cannot set a precedent in which a large nation can next part of a territory of other sovereign countries without any real consequences or with consequences that are, you know, superficial and won't last very long and which those kinds of autocratic leaders can choose to ignore. And this seems to me to be not just morally the right response, but also a very important part of deterrence to ensure that Putin does not start to pull the same kind of stunt with countries in the Baltic, which would increase the stakes tremendously, because at that point we're talking about potential conflict with NATO members and the risk of nuclear escalation, but also other countries that have the power to make good on territorial ambitions that need to understand what the adverse consequences of that, their ability to deal with the world might be if they choose to go there. So I think, you know, when it comes to the SWIFT payment system, which is a debate as we're recording this, and when it comes to those personal sanctions, when it comes to economic sanctions, we're probably agreed, and correct me if I'm wrong. There is a question about what it would mean to make Ukrainians themselves feel less alone right now. Now, we should have probably sent a lot more training, more money, more military apparel over the last seven or so years. We should have put Ukraine into a better state to defend itself in military terms, against Russian conventional forces, that's water under the bridge. It's too late for that. As we're recording this, the headline on the New York Times reads, Battle for Kiev. I fear that by the time that this podcast is released in a few days, it's Friday afternoon now, Kiev may well, perhaps is likely to be under the control of Russian forces. And so at that point, you know, Ukrainians have an incredibly tough choice to make between fighting for their freedom and fighting for their sovereignty which would likely mean ongoing urban guerrilla warfare and insurgency, which is going to take a heavy toll on the Russian occupying force, but also a very heavy toll on the Ukrainian civilian population, a heavy toll on the physical infrastructure of a country, the buildings, people's homes, or surrendering, giving up, which would be deeply depressing, disheartening, which would make Ukraine either formally or de facto a vassal state to Russia for the foreseeable future, but which might also save a lot of lives, which might mean that Ukrainian cities won't be reduced to rubble. So I don't know what to hope for as a choice from Ukrainians, and I don't know what America 
should do or what the West should do insofar as it can encourage one of those two choices. I don't know whether you have a view on it. Yeah, and I think to go a little further with the giving up scenario, what would that mean? I think one thing it would mean is millions of Ukrainians would try to leave. They would become refugees in Europe. Anyone with any connections in the West would use them. And my guess is there would be a kind of a evaporation of the young, energetic, and talented Ukrainians who have been the motor of the revolution of dignity of 2014 and the years since in which they've built civil society against great odds. So it wouldn't just be allowing a puppet regime to take over. It would be, in some ways, the end of the society that had been built with great, great difficulty over the last decade or two and the people who built it. So to me, Yasha, it's a really hard question for exactly the reasons you say. And I guess my best answer is, what do Ukrainians want? Obviously, we're not going to get polling data on this. Although it's interesting, there were polls before the invasion. And one of them showed that almost half the Ukrainian population said it would be willing to join the territorial defense forces, the volunteer military forces that civilians are now rushing to join, which is an incredibly high number. Even if a lot of them won't do it, it's an incredibly high number. It shows the degree to which Ukrainians feel that everything is at stake for them. And they're willing to leave their jobs, their families, their children, and risk their lives and quite likely give their lives. So my feeling is if it's clear that Ukrainian society is resisting and will continue to resist and has not been broken. If this is not the occupation of France, but more like the occupation of Warsaw, then I think we owe it to them to give them a chance to defend themselves and to resist, even if that means our weapons are contributing to the killing and the destruction. It's one of those terrible choices where you will not have clean hands no matter what you choose. Don't imagine that if you withhold weapons, you're preserving any kind of virtue, just as don't imagine that if you're sending weapons, you're on the side of heroism and glory. It's going to be a horrible period. Who knows how long it'll last? But I think if Ukrainians want to fight for their country, then we should give them every means to do that. And in doing so, to punish Putin as badly as we can, so that in the end, Russia will regret this. And there might even be some repercussions for him at home. I'm trying to think through what the right historical analogy might be for what an occupation of Ukraine would look like. Russia probably wants to keep a relatively light footprint if they can, install a puppet government and keep some troops in the country. You know, whether or not that's possible depends on the extent of resistance. But there's a real question as to how much resistance there's going to be. You mentioned one parallel, which was Warsaw under World War II where there was significant resistance. There's obviously some of the parallels which I think people have in mind when they think of quite significant urban guerrilla warfare, whether it's in Iraq after the US invasion, whether it is in some of the cities in Syria during the civil war. But there's also another clearly relevant historical analogy, which is all of the Central and Eastern European countries which were occupied by the Soviet Union after World War II, including in 1956, 
the quashing of a Hungarian reformist government and the mass protests there. And in 1968, the quashing of a Czechoslovakian reformist government and the mass protests there. My hunch, and it really is no more than a hunch, and it may very well turn out to be wrong, is that this will look more like Hungary after 56 or Prague after 68, that there will be deep loathing for the occupation, that there will be real patriotism and people being deeply angry and despondent because of the occupation. But I somehow have trouble picturing urban guerrilla warfare for a prolonged period in Kiev. Am I wrong about that? What do you think? Do you have a sense of which outcome is likely or what the helpful historical analogy here is? I think we're really in the unknown. I've never been to Kiev. You've never been to Kiev. We just don't know what is going to go on in the minds of Ukrainians with a Russian occupation and a puppet government. It's beyond <laughs> anything that we've imagined since we became adults. You may be right that there will be periodic rebellions of the Budapest 56, Prague 68 variety that will be put down pretty quickly and that the normal state of things will be sullenness and depression and lies and people accommodating themselves and trying to live their lives as best they can. But the histories are different because there hadn't been this period of real ferment and real democratic activism and real resistance before the occupation, as there is now in Ukraine. Ukrainians have seen Russia as a threat. They've been at war with Russia for years. War is not new there. It's new for us because we didn't think about Donbass. It was not on our minds. But Ukrainians are all saying now, we know what this is like. Even if this is a shocking escalation, we have brothers and friends in the East who've been fighting, who died. Their society has been somewhat militarized by that fighting. So I think it's a different sequence. And it may be that this sequence is one that is going to sustain a more active and long-term resistance than the Iron Curtain closing over Eastern Europe at the end of a terrible war in which the Soviet Union was in some ways the rightful victor over Nazi Germany and in which it imposed an ideology and a system on Eastern Europe that had a fair number of takers at the beginning, that was in some ways seemed like the way of the future at the beginning. There are very few people outside of the easternmost part of Ukraine that see a Russian takeover as somehow the road to progress. I still drawn to the analogy of Budapest in 56 and Prague in 68. But one of the disanalogies is that both of those parties had genuine homegrown communist parties, which had one power because of the military might of the Soviet Union, which had been imposed on the local populations without a doubt, but which were a natural vassal for a domestic puppet government with some amount of homegrown legitimacy, with some real homegrown roots. And that just made it much harder to resist the political order which was imposed in Hungary after 56 and on Czechoslovakia after 68, because there was in fact a domestic army that was willing to fight against protests. There was a domestic set of politicians that saw their task as being the continuity of this regime. And again, I want to make a subtle argument here because these were not legitimate governments, but it's hard to imagine 
of Russia being able to institute a puppet government in Kiev or wherever else in Ukraine that has as many roots as those communist parties did. You know, I don't think, for example, that that puppet government is going to be able to sustain command of a Ukrainian army that is loyal to it. Unlike the Hungarian army, which was loyal to the new government in the 70s and 80s, perhaps grudgingly, but nevertheless. So there are, I think, some important structural differences. Yeah, and there's also the Iron Curtain, which sealed off communication from the West to a large degree. And so there was a successful propaganda effort that convinced at least a generation of some Eastern Europeans that the West was a threat and that life in the West was a nightmare. Whereas Ukrainians have been exposed to Europe and the West for years now, and they know that that's what they want, at least a great majority of them, which was what led to the revolution of dignity in the first place when president of Ukraine went back on an agreement with Europe. So I don't know. It's just very hard to know. We're so much at the beginning of this. And I also would be very wary of imagining that this is going to end when it seems to end. I don't think that even if within a week there's a new puppet president on national TV and most of the fighting seems to have ended and some Russian troops are withdrawn back across the borders, I don't think that's anything close to the end of this. I think it will be a mission accomplished moment for Vladimir Putin that the Ukrainian people will have something else to say about. So you mentioned the Iron Curtain. President Zelensky said a couple of days ago that what Russia is doing is to impose a new Iron Curtain on Central Europe. And it does seem as though Vladimir Putin, who's on record as saying that the dissolution of the Soviet Union was one of the greatest tragedies of the 20th century. I think the greatest, you said. Yeah. The greatest is trying to reassemble some form of a Russian empire. It clearly wouldn't have the political ideology of the Soviet Union. It certainly wouldn't be communist. And it accentuates perhaps the way in which the Soviet Union itself was simply a new, in one important respect, just a new form of earlier Russian forms of imperialism. But it does look as though he's cobbling together between Russia, between Belarus, between Ukraine, between parts of a territory of Georgia and other countries that he has conquered, between the effective control he has over countries like Kazakhstan, a kind of new Russian empire. So do you think we are seeing the creation of a new Russian empire? And do you think we are seeing the descent of a new Iron Curtain across Europe? Or is, as uh, some of your critics and some of my critics would say, that just the recycling of old Cold War terminology, which is wholly and completely inappropriate to this new political moment? I think it's indisputable. And if a curtain comes down and you say there's a curtain made of iron and there is a curtain made of iron, you are not fomenting a new Cold War for your own purposes. You are recognizing reality. And it seems to me Putin is the one taking all the initiative in all of those cases that you mentioned. And Putin has been incredibly successful, including in Syria, in using limited military force for limited periods of time to win rather large political objectives. Ukraine is a gamble beyond those, but it's part of that. It's an escalation of the same thing. So you have to simply blind yourself to say there isn't something happening here, and it looks nothing like the old Soviet empire. Putin has been really clear about that. He called it the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. He is openly nostalgic 
for the Soviet empire. He said in that crazed speech just before the invasion that Ukraine was a creation of Bolshevik Russia, that it has no separate existence, and how dare it think that it could break away and become an independent country. I'd take him at his word because he's been as good as his word on a lot of things people didn't expect him to do. And now he's also threatening in some ways, a little bit veiled, but threatening the use of nuclear weapons. Don't forget we're a nuclear power. He's been saying that over and over again, which does put into question what it would mean for NATO to come to the defense of the Baltic countries, for example. If Putin is not so subtly saying, if we clash there, you better be ready for an escalation. He's testing, as he always does. What happens if I push hard here? What kind of response do I get? Oh, not much of a response on Crimea. I'll push a little harder on Donbass. What kind of response do I get there? Oh, the world seems able to live with Donbass. Let's try for the whole of Ukraine. Let's see what happens if I start talking about NATO itself. It's not out of the question. He's testing that next. I read your masterful piece about the Afghanistan withdrawal and the deep failure of the Biden administration to come to the rescue of our allies there, people who trusted us with their lives and will probably pay for our betrayal with their lives. I recommend it to everybody. It's called The Betrayal in the Atlantic. I came away from reading that piece with a deep anger about the failures of the Biden administration's foreign policy and a deep sense that if only those incredibly smart people in the administration and if only Joe Biden himself had been willing to do more for people who have risked their lives for the United States, their fate would have been a whole lot better. My sense is that the administration has acted much more competently, with much more resolve, with much more creativity on Ukraine, that they shared the intelligence assessments of what was about to happen, that they took significant risk in how they handled this in public relations, that they did what they could short of sending troops to deter Putin. And that's heartening because I want the Biden administration to succeed and I want people like Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, who is a former guest on this podcast, to succeed. I respect them and I want the best for them as well as for our country. But it strikes me that the outcome has not been any better which isn't necessarily to damn the current administration, but to worry about what America is capable of in 2022. The silver lining of our failure in Afghanistan was that you could think, well, if only the next administration reads this incredible reporting by George Packer and understands how not to act, the world may end up looking better. The dark aspect of an otherwise positive story about the Biden administration's resolve in this situation is that it wasn't enough, is that it didn't, in fact, make the crucial difference. So I don't know how to grapple with that. Yeah, you're right. I agree that they've been impressive. And I've asked myself why on this one and not on Afghanistan. And you know, maybe they drew some lessons from the debacle in August of last year. And maybe Ukraine and NATO and Europe mean something to Biden in a way that Afghanistan didn't, and he and therefore his top advisors simply acted with more urgency and more intelligence and more energy and more creativity, as you say, whereas Afghanistan, they were in a kind of bureaucratic ditch the entire time. And yet, yeah, it didn't work. If deterring Putin was the goal, it didn't work. 
and maybe nothing could have worked. I wrote a book about Richard Holbrook, and Bosnia was one example of, after three years of delay and weakness and disorganization, the U.S. and its allies used diplomacy and force to end a war. And probably to save a lot of people who were going to die if that war had gone on. The big difference was that Russia was in no position to do anything about it. If Russia had been Putin's Russia and said, if you bomb these Serb artillery batteries around Sarajevo, you're going to pull us directly into a war with NATO, would we have done it? Maybe not. At one point, Russia was sort of threatening that, but it wasn't serious. And what's new is that Russia is aggressive and Russia has nuclear weapons. And in some ways, Barack Obama was right to say that they would always care more about Ukraine than we would. So we're not going to be able to stop Putin if he decides to do something this horrific and this risky. But we can make it really hard for him, which Obama did not do after 2014, and which Trump absolutely reversed by becoming his best asshole buddy. We can make it really hard for him, especially if the Ukrainian people have not given up. And that's what it all depends on, of course. We can't really make it hard for him without them. And we can make it hard for him not just to punish him and to deter him, but to try to begin to reverse this terrible thing he's done. I don't think we should give up on Ukraine. I think it's in some ways an offense to what we are supposed to care about and what they have shown they care about if we give up on Ukraine. So as a last question, George, if the basic problem in Ukraine has always been that Russia cares more about Ukraine than we do, and I can think of one or two other important disputed territories of which that is true, What do we care about as much as Putin? How can we get our decision makers to care enough about a certain set of values or a certain set of interests that we have credible deterrence on them? We need to care about the future of democracy as much as Putin wants to destroy the future of democracy. It was democracy in Ukraine that threatened Putin. It was not NATO enlargement. It was not the Washington blob. He was not defending Christian civilization or some ancient Russian idea. It was the example of a democratic country right next door, a Russian-speaking democratic country right next door. If we care as much about defending democracy where we can, we're not going to be sending troops on impossible errands as we've done in the last 20 years. But if we can defend democracy using the many tools we have, especially financial ones, with as much energy as Putin and Xi Jinping are going about showing that democracy can be crushed, that would be a foreign policy I could get behind. George, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. It's always good to talk to you, Yasha. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, 
Please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.